Welcome to the Sum of It All, Faster Isn't Smarter podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague, Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring Faster Isn't Smarter by Kathy Seeley. Transcripts to our podcasts are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. In this episode, we're gonna continue talking about professional growth. This week, we're diving into messages 29 and 40 with our theme, Continuous Growth and how we develop as educators over time. So let's dive in. Message 29, the evolution of a math teacher, how we develop as professionals. Mark, tell us about this message. Well, it's so interesting how Kathy has broke this into stages. This idea of stage one, teaching mechanically. Stage two, convincing and engaging students. And stage three, committing to helping students, quote unquote, get it. Um, And Audrey, I couldn't help but think back to last week in our last episode. Remember when I was talking about this whole idea of this magical transformation that one day you're a new teacher and then the next year, the next day, you are a veteran teacher and sort of how that sort of mystical thing happens, right? Right. So, you know, it's interesting. Here we go to chapter or the message 29 and it's, it's like maybe there's this idea of stage stages, this continuum um, so, uh, yeah, what are you thinking about this, Audrey? Yeah, I, I really think it's interesting. And she leaves a little qualifier there saying it might, it's definitely not as, you know, broken into stages as, mm-hmm. as easily as, it, as she's made it sound here. Um, and she admits it might be a continuum. I also wonder maybe if it's a loop or a cycle instead oh, of a progression, yeah. like something mm-hmm. we kind of continue to go back through. Right. Or um, for my math geeks out there, maybe a periodic function that kind of dips up and down over and over again um, into different stages. Um, but I, I'm kind of curious about that because sometimes I think maybe I go back to the first stage at times or maybe I go back to the second stage at times. Yeah, you know, when you said that, Audrey, it made me think about like, if it's a content I'm not as comfortable with, I wonder if I slip back to that mechanical stage in terms of me teaching. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about what you're talking about with this cycle piece, you know. That's a really interesting point. So maybe we can spend some time unpacking like what moves teachers and educators what moves us when we're in those situations from one stage to the next. So maybe we can start with from stage one to stage two, like what are the things that might cause us to teach mechanically? So you've brought up something you're not as comfortable with teaching, right? Um, I'm also thinking, you know, she qualifies that she thinks new teachers end up here. And, and I think about all of our math methods courses and all the things universities are doing are pretty progressive in most places. Like they're pushing and describing the things that we've talked about in other episodes around how we think about teaching uh, mathematics. But I wonder if it's maybe, you know, you get into that classroom and, you know, there's something about the pull of the room and the role mm-hmm. that pulls you back to all the experiences you've had in K-12, right? So mm-hmm. if, you, if you had a really traditional growth through mathematics, the teacher delivering content, the student mimicking, like maybe that's all ingrained in you. And maybe if it's not that, um, maybe you had a more progressive experience or something that really allowed you to engage as a mathematician, that still doesn't teach you how to do that for others, right? So it's, I can just, I just know it's so easy to tell someone else, well, I get it this way, just do it like me and you'll get it. Yeah, no, good point. And you've really got me thinking about like when I was a new teacher, like if somebody would have explained these uh, stages to me, and I knew that going in, would that have changed how I looked at my teaching? Would I've would I've moved quicker from stage one to stage two? I don't know. I don't know if it's just the awareness of it, 
or if it's just the nature of the challenge of teaching being really hard work and you need some time to get your feet on the ground. I, I'm, I'm really curious about that. Um, it, did, it did give me a quick connection this weekend, Audrey. We had a great article drop in the Atlantic called Math is Personal. And something about this message uh, connected with this, with in the article, it talks about sometimes mathematicians say things like, you know, it's easy, just do this. And that's obvious, you know, or something like that. And I think as teachers, we, we can kind of sometimes fall victim to that in, the, in that mechanical stage too, of just sort of like acting like, yeah, this is, this is just easy. Just um, kind of like back to Peter Lilliadal's in the first season that we talked about uh, thinking classrooms with um, the mimicking, just, just mimic what I'm doing and um, just pay attention. If my students would just pay attention, we could just make it somewhere. So those are some things I'm thinking about with this mechanical stage. I think those are, are really fantastic points. And I, I think to the degree to which we think that teaching is something that if you follow certain steps, it's going to work, mm. um, pushes us back into that idea that it's, it's treated as mechanical versus it's an art form, it's relationships, right. it's messy. And I don't know that we acknowledge that often enough. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I can remember sitting in many, many um, staff meetings and it being treated as if we all did it the same way it was going to work. And right. we have to stop and acknowledge over and over again that when it's a people profession, when it's something about dealing with people and how people grow and develop, that there is no one way it's always going to work. Um, that a teacher and who they are as a person and how they identify and how they their mindsets and their beliefs um, in that moment affect how they're going to teach with all of the students who have their own identities and beliefs and mindsets um, and cultural um, assets they bring into the room, but also cultural beliefs um, and things that they've they believe to be true about themselves and how the world works. Um, so all of those things make it just messy. And so I think sometimes we don't acknowledge enough that it's messy and we can't treat it like um, a color by number or a paint by number situation that it's it is an art form uh, to a certain extent. So um, how about stage two to stage three though? This is a this is another nuance that's kind of interesting, right? So this is not mechanical. This is like you've grown some, you are now like acknowledging that students need different things. Um, how do we get from stage two to stage three? Yeah, great, great question, Audrey. And I do not have all the answers on this, but I'm gonna share a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, it's interesting. Stage two is called convincing and engaging students. And stage three is helping to get students to get it. So I think it's in some ways it's 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 interesting to think about like what's the difference between those two things. And I did have a connection uh, back to the levels of cognitive demand of tasks by Smith and Stein. And if if you remember, Audrey, in that that in that continuum that they created about tasks, there was this idea of procedures with connections and in those types of tasks the way that they're implemented is teachers would really work hard to make sure they had models and other types of ways to make sure kids could have a connection to the procedure and that really reminded me of some of the behaviors that uh, Kathy was describing in stage two this idea of really trying to make sure students are convinced with something by giving different modalities and having different ways to engage the students in that understanding. And so, but, but the thing that is really still true in that particular step is the teacher is still the one doing the thinking and doing the work to help the student understand. So I did have that connection to that other piece around that, Audrey. 
That's a great connection, Mark. Um, and it sounds like that might even play out into stage three then, right? So mm -hmm. stage three, when the students are getting it, that sounds a little bit more like that might fall in line with that continuum that you talked about from Smith and Stein with the doing mathematics. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think that's, that's really true, Audrey, because as I think back to that continuum, when I've worked on it before, as I think of tasks to use with students, is the difference between procedures without connections and doing mathematics. In doing mathematics, there is not a set procedure that the teacher has already um, brought out to the students. The idea is that the students generate the solutions to a particular uh, uh, problem and that they are making all the decisions along the way of how they might solve a problem. So that, that behavior that a student might engage in really made me think about stage three with committing helping students to get it. It's because we kind of have to decide what we mean by get it. Um, and get it, as she describes, seems to be a student that's coming to that realization as they're working on something. And you and I both know that look that students have, and I'm sure many people listening do, that look on a student's face when they figure out something for themselves, and it is just priceless, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, this is making me think, um, you know, she's presenting these stages if, if you can move through them linearly, which would mean that there's like some kind of finish line. Mm -hmm. And I know we talked about in our last episode that maybe there isn't a finish line. Like maybe the idea that there's some perfect teacher that you could be is maybe a false one that maybe we have to acknowledge that it's, um, we're always incomplete. It's never quite done. And to go back to the messiness of things, but I, I can understand that that's both um, disconcerting and empowering at the same time. Like it has, it has that, that, you know, that disposition of being the notion that we're never done or on an endless journey can feel absolutely exhausting. Um, but I also believe that it can be really freeing in knowing that there isn't some perfect ideal that we're supposed to get to. Mm. Um, it's about us getting better and it's about us mm -hmm. empowering students, um, in each and every student. And that we can always look up and say, there's something more I can, I can learn with in the art of teaching that can improve outcomes for students um, and, and empowering them in their learning journey. So, which I think really connects to um, message 40. But before we go there, um, or maybe we'll go there. Like lifelong improvement. Message 40 is lifelong improvement. So that really, really makes me think about this continuous improvement, improvement, science, um, some really buzzword things that are happening right now. Um, let's start there. What did you, what did, you connect with in message 40? Well, first, Audrey, there's a quote by Paul Lockhart from A Mathematician's Lament uh, as Kathy kicks off message 40. And it says, if teaching is reduced to mere data transmission, if there is no sharing of excitement and wonder, if teachers themselves are passive recipients of information and not creators of new ideas, what hope is there for their students? And I just thought that was just such a powerful quote and just really a powerful way of kicking off a message called seven steps toward being a better math teacher, because it really, it really sort of um, makes me think about like, how much am I engaged in the act of discovery as a teacher, just as much as my students are. And again, kind of like we just talked about with Smith and Stein, Smith and Stein that has implications for the kind of tasks that we engage in. Are they tasks that I've just completely can show you the procedure and it's just gonna solve it this way? Or are there tasks that I'm still wondering about as an adult and I can 
I can continue to discover new things about that task with my students every year. That's something that you really want to look forward to and get you up in the morning when you get in there with your students with that task, right? Absolutely. Well, I think it'd be, I think this is a fantastic opportunity to have something super concrete. Like she's giving us seven steps. She mentions right. you don't need to take them all, maybe take one, um, maybe push yourself and take more than one. But I thought maybe we can share out a little bit about examples from our okay. careers, our pasts, mm -hmm. our current sure. spaces about how we've done one or more of these steps. Um, so I'll kick it off with the right. step one is around omit one thing. And I distinctly remember one year in teaching, I my course load had sections of algebra one and algebra two. Mm. And it was that year that I realized we had this week long review of the slope formula in algebra two. And I realized we had left as a department, we had put it there as this like, just in case we think our students need this. So just in case we're gonna provide them this review. And I couldn't do it that year. I looked up and I'm like, I'm teaching my algebra one kids the exact same things that I'm teaching students two years later um, in our math program. That's not honoring them as thinkers mm -hmm. and um, as people who have grown. And so I took it out and I said, I'm gonna keep all of that stuff as just in case instead of just in time. Um, and it really changed um, the dynamic of the classroom. And I said, hey, I, I know you know this. I know you can figure this out. And if you can't, I'm gonna support you and we're gonna fill in as we need to, but we're not gonna spend the week on this. Um, and it gave us time to explore something more in depth that we needed time to explore that was pushing them beyond and not pushing them back. And so um, I know we did similar things this last year in the pandemic that so many um, districts and schools said, let's look at what is essential. What does essential learning look like? Um, what are the things that are going to transcend this year that they need for the next year? Let's make sure we pay time and effort and focus on those. Um, and I know many of us had to do that very quickly in order to accommodate the needs of a very fast changing educational demand. Um, so maybe this is the chance at this point to go back and review the things you took out. How did it work? What are you thinking about? Um, the things you omitted, the things that you said, I'm going to go up a level and look at it in a more broad sense. Um, and if it wasn't the right thing, you know, find, find the way you balance that this year. Um, so there's a, there's an option there if that's a step that's interesting to you. Yeah, that, that's interesting, Audrey. Thanks for sharing that for omit one thing on step one. On step two uh, for, is focus on one habit of mind. And Audrey, what I was thinking about there is, um, as you know, in California, part of our standards include the standards for mathematical practice. And they're they are like the habits of mind that that we work with incorporating in all of our lessons from TK to 12. And one of the things that she suggests is maybe targeting one of these standards for mathematical practice to deepen understanding uh, of, with our own understanding. And I thought that was really sound advice um, of us looking at these eight practices and saying, okay, this year, which one do I wanna get a deeper understanding about? One of the things that I might think about too is like, are there certain, practices that I'm kind of dodging, like I'm, I, I'm sticking with convincing arguments, but, you know, maybe, you know, skipping seven and eight, because I'm not really sure what they mean by patterns and structure there. So I'm going to kind of just avoid that, but maybe pushing ourselves, nudging ourselves to make sure that we're diving into a practice for our own professional learning. Um, I think it's great advice. And I think it is good for that. She, she's quick to point out that she's not saying just teach around one practice. We don't wanna exclude any practices for our students to engage in, but just for us as our professional learning. I thought that was good advice. 
I think that's fantastic point and seven and eight are definitely ones that I myself can dive further into at any point and probably learn a lot more. Um, so for step three, it talks about focusing on one mathematical content area or topic. And just like with what you were describing, Mark, with the habits of mind, it's for our own benefit, not um, that we're excluding everything else for our students, but thinking about how we might learn more about it. And uh, maybe five, maybe longer, five years ago or so, I was at a conference and I heard Graham Fletcher speak and he said, I casually, just off the cuff, kind of like, if you can't visualize it, then maybe you don't really understand it. And that stuck with me um, and some colleagues and that threw us down a path of like, well, can we visualize that? Like, do we actually know what that means? Um, and so one year we focused in on systems of equations and how do we solve systems of equations algebraically, but what does that mean visually? Like, how do we represent that? And that pushed us into closed line math, um, mm, thinking around yeah. things in a different space, right? And that really grew my own understanding of something I just took as like, it's a procedural thing. We just do it this way, follow what I do. Like that was totally my teaching mantra um, until I explored it for myself and realized, oh my goodness, it makes so much more sense in the visual space. And now I have access to other tools and ways of thinking about it when I work with students on that, that idea. We did the same with multiplying fractions. Like why does that work? Dividing fractions, um, decimal approximations of square roots. I mean, things that like, are not necessarily important topics in mathematics, um, but were really important to me in my own growth around like, can I, do I really understand this? Or have I always taken it for granted that whatever the procedure was just is the way it works? Um, so those are some examples from my past. I, I love those examples and Audrey, I especially love the clothesline math example because uh, when you showed that to me a few years ago with some of those topics, um, Boy, it made so much more sense to me. So I love the double benefit there. It, like you got more of a deeper understanding about why those things work, but then that in, that in turn changed how you would teach it and how you would help other teachers teach it with the clothesline. I think that's just great. Yeah, fantastic. What about step four? Use technology in one powerful way. What do you got? Well, I have a, I actually have something that's that's a short statement. Here it is. Ready? Twitter as professional learning. Yes. Hundred <laughs> percent. And I have to, I have to say, Audrey, you get some credit here. Is years ago, uh, we had a conversation, and you said, "Mark, are you on Twitter?" And I'm like, "No." And you're like, "You need to get on Twitter." I'm like, "Why?" <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it was that kind of conversation, and it dragged my feet for a while, of course. Um, but I have to admit, folks, if you're not on Twitter uh, and you, you can choose the folks that you follow, I get such great professional learning over Twitter. Uh, so I. I, that's all that I just, I think that's my big point around professional learning and technology is Twitter. <laughs> I, I love that you were the one to say that and not me. Um, <laughs> and I will just put a plus one there and say that I've, I created myself a professional learning community on Twitter and that's what I used it for. And it has been um, absolutely the group I needed when I needed them, when I didn't have people locally to connect with in that same way. So um, sometimes you need to expand the size of the pond you're in um, yep. in order to reach out to some other folks. Um, do I talk about Desmos too much? Can I put a little plug out there for Desmos as technology? I probably talk about them way too much, but um, I'm going to do it anyway. Mark is laughing yeah, at me. Go for it. Go um, for it. <laughs> I think that sometimes I look up and technology looks like we're doing what we're doing on paper, just on a computer to make it just easier for people who have devices. Um, but Desmos, I think, fundamentally does something different. And every time I go on there um, and I see what they're creating and pushing practices on, um, I just have to say, like, the philosophy of, like, how do we engage students? How do we provide feedback that pushes it back on their thinking? 
um, that their principles of design are fundamentally the right thing to be thinking about um, in terms of using technology in a powerful way for students. So if you've not explored Desmos yet, check out teacher.desmos.com. I think it could change how you teach mathematics to your students. Mm -hmm, for sure. Well, looking at step five, Audrey, uh, step five is read one book that challenges you to think differently about your mathematics teaching. And I'd have to say a lot of books uh, throughout my career come to mind, but I'm going to share a couple that are pretty recent in the last uh, five or so years. Uh, Tracy Zager's Becoming the Math Teacher You Wish You'd Had, which by the way, I think is one of the best all-time titles of a book, uh, uh, is just a wonderful book. It just these, the, these different ways of thinking about how mathematicians engage in mathematics and how our students can do the same thing. Uh, is just really a book for, for everyone. I can't recommend that one highly enough. But also Principles to Actions from uh, NCTM, also a really, really nice uh, text around different ways of thinking about the teaching practices that we might engage in and really uh, some really nice pieces around equity in terms of mathematics as well. Uh, what about you, Audrey? What books come to mind? Yeah, those two you mentioned absolutely are on the top of my list for recent books. I think if I was thinking before that, um, so thinking longer ago, 10, 15 years ago, Bob Moses's Radical Equations, that was transformational for me. And so was Lisa Delpit's Other People's Children. Um, so Bob's book, Bob Moses' book, more about mathematics, Lisa Delpit's more in general, but both of those um, tackle issues around thinking about um, teaching and who you're teaching and what's the why behind it in a different way um, were, were critical to me. I think if we thought about like super recent, we've done talked about both of these in different ways on podcasts. Um, Peter Liljedahl's book, Building a Thinking Classroom, or Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics, and Zaretta Hammond's Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, I think for both of us have been oh, yeah. um, in recent, you know, months in the last year or so mm -hmm. have been absolutely um, tremendously impactful in how we're looking at mathematics and equity issues in the classroom. So if you haven't had a chance to check out those, those might be a great a great space for you too. And just quickly, Audrey, you know, tech has given us great new ways to engage in books with folks that we never would have before over Zoom, slow Twitter chats, podcasting. Um, so the tech comes back around, right? Like um, folks, if you're out there and you don't have somebody to get in a room with around a book study, there's a lot of other ways to do that now. So keep that in mind. Absolutely. Uh, step six, shift the focus or balance of one assessment. Um, so I thought this was super interesting about like, imagine you take one assessment, you swap it out. I did that one year, took a chapter test, turned it into a performance task instead. Super interesting results in my classroom, told me things I wasn't expecting about my students and what they knew and were able to do. Um, I've heard other teachers um, trying on things where they ask their students um, and they say, here's the big idea of this chapter. Show me what you know, instead of asking a whole bunch of smaller details and, um, and moving on with that. So. I'm sure there's many more ideas there in terms of how you could do that, but that's a small thing you could try out as well um, within your professional learning community or your PLC at your site. Awesome. Hey, Audrey, let's jump to step seven. Um, this last step is, is a really impactful one, I think. Uh, it's help one student accomplish something you didn't think she or he could do. And the thing I really love about this step, right out of the gate in the, her explanation, Kathy says, consider looking at one student or possibly a group of students for whom you have a lower expectation. Bam. I mean, that is so honest, right? Like 
really pushing yourself to do this. Um, there's that challenge from Kathy, right? Uh, are, are we prepared to take it? Um, it reminds me a little bit years ago in our school, in the school district I was working in, they asked us to pick target students to keep an eye on. But you know, it wasn't really personal. It was more around summative data and, and just sort of thinking about like, how are your target students doing? But you know, I really think this idea of thinking about a student that you may have a lower expectation of, and then getting together with that student and said, I am committed to help you making this goal. Let's figure it out together. That sounds way better than that target student work that I'd done years ago and, and really gets me excited about the potential there. I think that's a fantastic point. I definitely struggled when I read that sentence around lower expectations. I'm like, no, 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 I don't have lower expectations for any of my students, um, but we do. And so some ways that you might think about that, if you're still, you're like, I don't have that. That's not, that's not me is um, maybe thinking about students who have different identities than you, you know, mm -hmm. like they yeah. might see the world differently than you do. Um, and here's one that my district used and I think it's code for struggle for um, low expectations as they said pick a student who's struggling in your class mm -hmm. I think by virtue of saying that I am acknowledging that they are not making it in my system and mm -hmm. the acknowledgement there should be I have lower expectations for that like I'm already labeling them as a struggling yeah, student yeah, like right. that's code and I don't I didn't think of it at the time um, yeah. but in reading this um, section in this article I definitely was I was thrown for a loop there I was like whew so for what it's worth, pick a student, try it on. Uh, you might be really surprised with what progress you make with that one student when you sit down and have a different kind of conversation with them. Wow, Audrey, we talked about a lot of cool stuff around professional learning. Super excited to hear if uh, folks are gonna try on some of those pieces uh, and good for us to keep thinking about as we continue our journey as well. Thanks for joining us in this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about moving forward with messages two, 12 and 13. You can grab the full schedule by visiting www.sdcoe.net slash math and clicking on the podcast page. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on your professional learning journey. Remember, faster isn't smarter.